0: Lester, you and others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. We're going to be focusing in on one verse today. Verse 5, if you put your eyes on it, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Each one of these weeks, I'm just looking at one of these Beatitudes. A Beatitude is a a divine blessing. That's what it means. We're looking at one each week, and so this is a little bit different than the way that I normally preach or teach. If you're a visitor with us, normally we begin at the front of books of the Bible, and we just teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire books of the Bible. Well, Today we're just focusing in, maybe a little bit more microscopically, to a particular part of the Bible, using it as kind of a launching off pad to consider in greater detail what exactly Jesus means in these famous words, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And there's a few things that I want to consider. I want to consider, first of all, what is meekness? Boy, is there anything more misunderstood in our own day than this idea of meekness? What is meekness? And then secondly, I want us to consider what meekness is. And thirdly, I want us to consider how to cultivate meekness in our own lives by God's grace. Before we dive in though, let me just give you by way of reminder what we've already talked about. These qualities of being poor in spirit or mourners or meek or hungry and thirsty for righteousness and so on, these are not how-tos for getting into the kingdom. It's not eight steps to your best life now. This would make, if we want to be really honest, a really bad way to start conferences and to sell books for self-help. Because if we look at this merely as a list to make God happy and to find entrance into the kingdom of heaven, then we will be crushed by it. Rather, the better way to consider is in the context of, of what Jesus has been teaching concerning His kingdom. For wherever His kingdom is, that's where He is. The King is in His kingdom. And He is a King of glory and grace. And this kingdom is formed and ratified by His covenant, namely that covenant of grace that He has made with each sinner who is brought by God's grace to repent and believe in Him for salvation. And in the context of this covenant, these promises that He makes, unbreakable promises are various blessings and benefits that manifest themselves in our lives, transformed lives, And those transformed lives then shape the character of His kingdom, and that's what we see in the Beatitudes. It's not so much a how-to list, as it is a list of qualities of those who have had an encounter with the grace of God in Christ, and have seen their lives transformed in Him. And while, on the one hand, these qualities face certain difficulties and challenges, such as persecution... At least on this side of the resurrection, we notice that there are promises that are attached to each one of a hope beyond this world, of a hope beyond our own possessions, of a hope beyond our own pain, to the kingdom of Christ, to a new creation where we will be comforted, to an inheritance that is stored up in heaven for us, for being finally and fully and ultimately satisfied in Him. Oh, what an amazing thing to consider, what that might be that that our restless souls would ultimately and finally and without exception be satisfied, never long for anything more than we've already received in Christ. No, these beatitudes are not laws to be obeyed for entry into God's kingdom, They are the character of His kingdom rooted in the grace of the gospel manifesting themselves in the light of not just some saints but every saint that belongs in Him. And in that way, these qualities are not like church offices whereas some are qualified for them and others aren't. And they're not like spiritual gifts where some of you have some of these qualities and others of you have others of these qualities. They're more like fruit of the Spirit that all of us have all of them by the indwelling Spirit that is given to us as the very gift of the gospel in Christ, that all belongs to us, and to be shaped more and more into the image of Christ, to look more like Christ, to think more like Christ, to act and to speak more like Christ is the Spirit's work in us, bringing us more and more into conformity of what we see in this list. And so, if we get to the end of the Beatitudes and we feel crushed by what we perceive as being their demands, then we have not understood the Beatitudes. But if we get to the end of it and we recognize that that all that God demands of us is provided for us in Christ and produced in us by His Holy Spirit, then this list is not a crushing set of, of commands. They're really good news of God's work in us. And that's how we're meant to look at it. And so I want to consider the first thing. Looking at verse 5, he says, blessed are the meek. This is what the blessed life looks like. It's those who are meek. And why are they meek? Because there's a promise attached to meekness, for they shall inherit the earth. And yet I think in our own day, there's all kinds of confusion about what it means to be meek. As we have all kinds of wars with gender ideology and toxic masculinity and and feminism and all of these kinds of things, the true meaning of meekness can be lost. I think sometimes this idea of meekness gets made out to be synonymous with being weak or being tired or maybe even being somewhat effeminate. Thomas Manton said this, The world counts it an effeminate softness but God counts it an ornament. This is the best Christian temper. And so what is meekness? If it's not weakness, and if it's not ultimately a kind of effeminacy, then what is meekness? What are we talking about? That word translated meekness in verse 5 is elsewhere translated similarly as gentleness was used in the ancient world not to speak of those who are really weak or of those who don't have any calluses on their hands or those who are easily whooped in a fight. It's talking about the word was often used for animals that are tamed, like wild horses that are broken. In our culture, we love wild horses. We want to be like wild horses. We write songs about wild horses. Be like that. But the Beatitude says, no, wild horses need to be tamed. And brought under control if they're going to be of any usefulness. And that's the sense of the word translated meek. That the animal still has all of his strength and all of his spirit, but its will is now under the control of its master. The master that intends only good things for it. One person put it this way, quote, meekness doesn't breed out of the horse's power or the dog's impulse to chase Meekness matures these drives into something useful, something controllable, something disciplined. And so, if we were to offer a definition of what it means to be meek, what is meekness? It's simply this Meekness is human power under God's control. It is human power under God's control. It's all of our mind and all of our strength. Don't be too impressed. Restrained by God's grace, for God's glory, and the good of all men. I love how Matthew Henry puts it. The meek are those who quietly submit themselves to God, to His word, and to His rod. That is His rod of discipline as He trains us. Who follow His directions and comply with His designs and are gentle toward all men. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Jerry Bridges, the late author, one of my favorites, made the observation that whereas gentleness is a passive quality, it's something that, or an active quality, it's something that we do, meekness is much more of a passive quality. It's something that's produced in us, from outside of us, even as we endure, for instance, as he says here, persecution for righteousness' sake. It has to do with how we might respond in certain settings, especially as we endure hard things for the gospel. And yet, I wonder if we might even take that a step further, that maybe a way to understand this relationship between meekness and gentleness is meekness is that kind of soil in which the Word of God is implanted and the fruit that God's Word by the power of God's Spirit produces. In a heart that is meek is gentleness. That's why James says in James 1.21, receive the implanted word with meekness. Same word. That's the soil in which God's word is to be planted if it bears fruit. And the fruit of the Spirit that gets born is love, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. It's gentleness. The Seed of the gospel, planted in a heart that is made meek by God's grace, produces the fruit of gentleness. One is the, the soil, the other is the fruit, and they have an organic relationship to one another such that to speak of one is to speak of the other. Meek people are gentle people. And gentle people are meek people. You say, well, that sounds awfully effeminate to me. That sounds awfully weak to me. And if it sounds that way to you, I wonder if you've been trained and discipled and taught more by some of the isms of our day than by God's word. And let's consider this together. Where else do we see meekness? Do we see it anywhere else in the Bible? Well, we certainly see it in the Old Testament. Although this isn't really the way that we think about God in the Old Testament. Maybe you're visiting with us. And the, and the prevailing idea that you have about God is that that God of the Old Testament, well, he's the angry God, the wrathful God, the, the God of the Canaanite genocide. Well, friend, I want to suggest to you that that. That God of justice and of wrath against sin is also a God of meekness, restraining Himself for the good of His people. The psalmist, in fact, used two images to describe God's meekness or gentleness. Psalm 23, He is, first of all, like a gentle shepherd. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. Now, this is the... These are the words of a man whose soul is weary. And how does God deal with that weary soul? Is He harsh? He makes me lie down. And He leads me. He restores me. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He's a shepherd. And He's a gentle shepherd at that. But not only is He like a gentle shepherd, He's also, Psalm 103, like a gentle parent. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Get this? For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust, that we are fragile creatures. Nobody knows that better than God knows that. And he deals with us in kind. He remembers our frame, our frailty, our weakness. And he remembers that we are dust. He's like a gentle parent. Not harsh, not exasperating. Though he will train us sometimes through hard things, he does it always in love. His rod is gentle. David, elsewhere in the Psalms, said this, quote, my greatness is because of your gentleness. Psalm 18, he says, your gentleness has made me great. And that of... Crazy thing to consider. David had power, he had fame, he had military victories, he had an all-adoring kingdom, and yet he says that his greatness comes by God's gentleness, because God dealt gently with him. All those years of being on the run from Saul, all those times when he was enduring hard things, when God was training him and disciplining him, when he was scared, hungry, tired, and weak, God was gentle to him. He stooped down to comfort him and to carry him so that he might fulfill his purposes in him. David says, my greatness is because of your gentleness. Beloved, do you know that God knows that we are weak? Do you believe that? That he knows how easily discouraged and wearied we can be by this life. He knows all the demands that are placed on you in your life And He knows of all the demands of His law. And He knows that those are burdens far too great for us to bear on our own. And God's response to our weakness in all of these ways, be it physically, emotionally, or morally, His response is gentleness. Like a gentle shepherd and like a gentle parent. That's a God of the Old Testament. Jerry Bridges said this, both gentleness and meekness are born of power, not weakness. There is a pseudo-gentleness, he says, that is effeminate, and there is a pseudo-meekness that is cowardly. He's going to go on to say, that's not what I'm talking about. He says, but a Christian is to be gentle and meek because, and you've got to get this, get this. A Christian is gentle and meek because those are God-like virtues. God is like that. He's gentle with us. And so we are to be meek in response. is this exactly how God has revealed Himself to be in His Son, Jesus? Oh, if you're a visitor with us, I hope that if there's anything that I'm able to rid you of is this, this silly idea, untrue of the Bible, that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and the God of the New Testament is somehow a God of love. There is no God other than the God that we see revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the Apostle Paul said this I entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. That's who God is. Matthew 11, you've already heard it today in our service Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am gentle. There is no God other than the God that is revealed in Jesus. That's what God is like. He is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. I am gentle. Come to me and I'll give you rest. That's from Matthew chapter 11. And so turn over in your Bibles, if you would, just a handful of chapters. You're in Matthew 5 now. Move over to chapter 11. And I want you to jump to verses 28 and 29 because it's worth considering that passage in a little bit more focus. Going all the way back up to verse 25 for context, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except for the Father, and no one knows the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal them. If anyone knows the Father through the Son, what is it that they know by faith about the Father through the Son? Here it is. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, all those who are crushed under the weight of the law, and I will give you rest all of your working, all of your laboring, all of your proving, all of your earning, you're weary. Come to me, and I'm going to give you rest from all of it. Take my yoke upon you. Now, the yoke that he's talking about is, in an agricultural context, you would yoke two oxen together so that you could pull the plow or whatever it may be, and one oxen is able to give the other oxen additional strength and power. And the image here is yoke yourself to me. You can't fulfill all righteousness on your own. You are a transgressor. You're deserving of condemnation before an all holy God. But if you yoke yourself to me, here is what working, all of your working now looks like rest. Because in all of my righteousness and all of my strength and all of my power, I'm going to do all the work so that you get all of the rest. Come to me and I'll give you rest. Because I'm gentle and I'm lowly in heart. Isn't that a remarkable? thing to consider when we consider who it is that that Christ is addressing. He's addressing sinners. He's addressing lawbreakers. He's addressing those who have rejected God's law time and again, those who are continuing to live and persist in sin. And He looks at them, and He doesn't shame them. He doesn't ultimately simply rebuke them. He says, come to me. For my heart towards sinners like you is one of gentleness and lowliness, to stoop down to you, to invite you to myself. And it's only here that you will find rest for that restless soul. Only here. This is who God has revealed himself to be in his Son. Notice how does Jesus describe himself? As gentle. Toward whom is Jesus so meek and kind? Just as we sang, to those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. So all those who are crushed by the legal demands of God. And to what benefits do weary people receive from this gentleness? Well, He tells us. It's rest. Friend, if you're visiting here today, here's what we have to offer you. We may not have a whole host of programs, and we don't only ultimately offer you friendships. I don't even have a a mug with our church logo on it to give you on the way out, or a pin with our name on it. But here's what we do have to offer you. We can offer you rest. Then when you walk through those doors in the front, and you walk through those doors in the back, and you come and sit down, that in all of our singing and all of our praying, and even now in my preaching, here's what I have to offer. Here's what God has to offer and weary and worn out sinners, crushed under the condemnation of the law's demands which you cannot keep. That for sinners like you, Jesus gently invites you to come and find rest in Him. Because He was crushed for you. Crushed for all those who repent and believe in Him. Crushed for the crushed. That the crushed might rest. That's what we understand to be the good news of Christianity. It's not a political slogan. It's not any agenda for cultural transform ultimately. It is an invitation for sinners who are enemies against an all-holy God to become His friends and to find rest from their labors in Christ, that He would be your rest. Oh, friend, rest in Christ. He's already declared, it is finished. So do not leave here thinking there is one more thing for you to add to Christ's finished work, to approve yourself to your all-holy God and Creator. He has done it all. The only work you have to bring is to bring your sin to Him, receive His free gift of righteousness, and stop working. It's to rest. Do you Christians, keep resting in Christ just as you received Him by faith. We have an enemy that loves to whisper in our ears and loves to stir up that lingering moralism in our heart that would have us approve ourselves to God, that would have us in a kind of bartering relationship with God, that if I do a little bit of this, then you'll do a little bit of this for me. And that is poison to the soul. My invitation to you, my offer to you, is the same offer that you received when you came to Christ the first time, and that is to rest in Christ. No more working. Not for approval or salvation, not to be saved, not to stay saved. Rather, look to Christ, come to Christ again and again and again, and rest in Him alone. Rest in Christ. Well, I want to consider also in Matthew chapter 5, as you go back there, the blessing of meekness. We just considered what it is, but what about the blessing of meekness? He says, blessed are those who are meek for, here's the reason, they shall inherit the earth. That's a big promise. It's a similar idea to what we see in Romans chapter 4 where Abraham is said to be the heir of the world. That by faith in the gospel that was preached to him, Abraham obtained a promise, a lasting city, the author of Hebrews says, a lasting city in a land that was better than Canaan. And all those who believe in the same gospel are Abraham's children, not children of his flesh, ultimately, those are the Jews, not ultimately of his flesh, but of his faith. And that by faith, here's what Paul says, Galatians 3:29. if you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. If you believe the same gospel that Abraham believed, centered and concerning the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the blessings of the nations that he would pour out, that is, that God would pour out on the nations through Christ, that if you believe that very same gospel, trusting ultimately in the promises that find their yes and amen in Christ, as Abraham did, then just as Abraham is an heir of the world, so you too shall inherit the earth. That just as the firstborn son, who is now at the right hand of majesty on high and is the rightful heir of all of the cosmos and the new creation that is yet to come, so we who are seated with him in the heavenly places, we who are in Christ by faith, receive that same inheritance in Christ. He's saying, you may be meek now. You may endure persecution now. But you have an inheritance it's cosmic in scope it's abraham's inheritance it's a new creation it's the very earth that is going to be remade by the word of christ at the end of the age is yours and that gives us motivation to wait doesn't it it gives us motivation to endure that future grace becomes what it is that we run this race for ultimately isn't it the world says no 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 listen We live in a world whose economies, relationally, nationally or otherwise, is all about taking and building kingdoms by force, by the power of the sword, not so the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of Christ is brought about by the power of the Spirit, the power of the Word reigning over our hearts, transforming our lives as we go into the world to make disciples. The promise of an inheritance of the earth means that we don't have to build influence and grow earthly power in this world by worldly means. And I wonder, is that a message that many evangelicals need to hear today in our own day? When we Look eye to eye to the many cultural pressures that we're facing. Do we want to love our neighbor by obeying the law? Yes, we do. Do we want to see lawful laws on the books and, and godly people serving? Of course we do. But can we be tempted to want to take all those things by force? Not so the kingdom. Christ's kingdom is not of this world. That we are heirs of a creation yet to come. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He is not always watching himself in his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. To be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. The man who is truly meek never pities himself. He is never sorry for himself. He never talks to himself and says, well, you're having a hard time. How unkind these people are to not understand you. It's in the middle of all of that, isn't it? And being overly sensitive and watching over our own interest and being defensive and protecting ourselves and defending ourselves that we are willing to take up the sword in retaliation against anybody and anything else in the world. And Jesus says, that is contrary to my kingdom. That is not what the meek look like. Confident heirs can endure temporary mistreatment in this world without retaliating, without quarreling, and without violence because they're heirs. Full stop. No amount of mistreatment can diminish or take away our royal inheritance one whit, it's ours. And it's so much better than anything that we could take by force in this life. That's our reward. And so considering that reward, considering what meekness is, that leads me to really our final point, probably the more practical point, and that is how do we cultivate the grace of meekness? A few things to consider. First of all, who is meekness for? Secondly, what is meekness for? And then thirdly, how do we cultivate meekness? Who is it for, what is it for, and how do we cultivate it? First of all, who is meekness for? It is, first of all, for every Christian. That's what we've said when we look at these Beatitudes. This is what the rule of Christ looks like in the hearts of those who have been brought by His grace to be united to Him by faith. It's the character of the kingdom, of those who enjoy the many blessings and the benefits of the kingdom of Christ according to His covenant of grace. It's qualities for every Christian. It is similar, as I said earlier, to spiritual gifts. And what is a spiritual gift other than the fruit of gentleness? Listen to what Paul says, Colossians 3.12, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, same word, meekness command he gives to all the members of the church, to every Christian, not just the one he's writing to, to all Christians who would receive that letter by faith later. Put on meekness. And so meekness is, first of all, for every Christian. It's not just for every Christian generally, but more specifically, it is for Christian women. Listen to this. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of your hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of your heart With the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That word for a gentle spirit is the same word used here in Matthew chapter 5. It's a meek spirit. Now, what that doesn't mean is that you need to go shut up, never talk, don't say anything. To many of you sisters who maybe have slightly louder personalities than others, praise God, I thank God for that, that He's made you that way. That is not what this verse is talking about. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart. In other words, let people be impressed by this. Not by your outward adornment, but by your inner transformation. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a feminine power under the control of God that submits to God's will and God's word by the power of God's spirit, conforming your life, your affections, your words after Christ. You realize this is not a command that's separate from Christ. This is what it looks like to reflect Christ in your femininity, It's to be gentle. It's to be quiet. That idea of quiet is not shut your mouth. That idea of quiet is to be tranquil. It's the opposite of those who are easily tossed to and fro by every wave or doctrine that comes your way, of those who are unstable, that there is a certain kind of stability to the godly woman whose affections and whose desires and whose heart have been submitted to Christ. He says, this is the kind of spirit which in God's sight is very precious. And so, this kind of meekness is also for Christian women. Not only that, it's for Christian men. So, it's not merely effeminate. From greater to lesser, let's consider it this. If Christ, in the manliness of Christ, to our own masculinity. From the greatness of Christ's manliness to the lesser of our own manliness. Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly. I just need to stop here for a minute because I think we live in a day, culturally as well as in the church, where there are right reactions against certain isms, including feminism, that can tend to overreact against the blanket applications of a kind of toxic masculinity where men are taught to be ashamed to be men as if it's not good to be a man. That's how God made us. But our own culture, much like Christian theology, can be an exercise in overreactions. And an attempt to rescue a kind of biblical masculinity presents an imbalanced masculinity. And so I'm talking specifically to you young men. Those of you who you're flipping through YouTube might be, attracted to certain personalities that spew a kind of masculinity that flies in the face of a a supposedly effeminate and effeminized culture, Andrew Tate or otherwise, or any Christian man that would seem to imitate or latch on to a similar kind of movement in the name of, of capital P, patriarchy, or whatever it may be, I need you to listen to me. Brothers, you need to beware of teachers, any Christian teachers that preach a biblical vision of masculinity that is eager to identify with Christ's power, authority, strength, and triumph while hesitant or silent on the imitation of Christ in his meekness, submission, weakness, and humiliation. That's an imbalanced view of masculinity. Real men are meek men because Christ was meek. Strong men pray, God, make me meek. Because that is to pray, make me like Christ. So don't buy into all of the overreactions, whether in the world or even in some of our own Christian circles. It is good to be a man, it is good to be courageous, it is good to be strong physically, emotionally and mentally for the glory of God and the good of others, but we cannot uncouple that from the kind of meekness and humility that submits your power under the sovereign lordship of Christ to become more like Him and to benefit everyone around you for His glory. So beware of teachers who love the power of Christ but say nothing of His meekness. To become more like Christ is to become both. Our whole life, all of our minds, all of our soul, and all of our strength Submitted to God's word and love for God. That's the biblical vision of masculinity. All your power, all your strength, all your mind, submitted to God for his glory and for the good of others. That's what it means to be a man. And it is good to be a meek man. But it's not just for Christian men. We see it also for Christian leaders. St. Corinthians 10, Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you but bold toward you when I am away. In other words, here's how I want to come to you. I want to be humble when I'm face to face with you even in your many failings, even in your many struggles. I want to be humble and I want to entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Come to me. Come to Christ. Embrace the gospel. Rest in Him. I want that to be the posture of my ministry, Paul says. Is that the posture of our ministry? Brothers, to you elders, I would just encourage you, is that as we evaluate the character and the posture of our own ministries, we aim to lead and shepherd this flock. Would our members say, I see something of Christ's meekness in our elders? May it never be that they see lives that are characterized by harshness, by sinful sarcasm, by an overcorrective spirit, by quarrelsomeness. All of that is contrary to what God has called his servant to be. Now, this is what Paul says, 2 Timothy 2, speaking of Christian leaders in the church, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. To many of you brothers who aspire to be leaders in the church, One of the ways that I would have you evaluate your own hearts as you consider what mature Christianity looks like is how is it that you respond in your heart, from your mouths, on your feeds, in your workplace, to those that you would consider to be your enemies? Jesus is going to teach later in the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect as my Father is perfect. How is his Father perfect? He says, be like God who loves his enemies. He says, correct your opponents with gentleness, scoffers with gentleness, doubters with gentleness, those who, 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 who claim false things about you and slander you with gentleness and do it from the Word. This is what mature godliness looks like, and that is what leaders are meant to do. That we're not quarrelsome. We don't love a good fight. We're willing to fight for the gospel's sake, but not because we love the fight. We're not quarrelsome, and even when we have to fight, we fight with a kind of meekness that is commending Christ and compelling people to come to Christ and putting His word forward, hiding behind it. So it's for Christian leaders too, correcting opponents with same word, meekness, gentleness. So who is it for? It's for all Christians, Christian women, Christian men, Christian leaders, but what is it for? I just want you to go a few places with me. First of all, it's for ministry in the church. What is it for, ministry in the church? Go to the book of Galatians to your right, just a little bit from the Gospel of Matthew, Galatians chapter 6. And naturally if you're going to join any church, if you're our church, you're going to find in no small amount of time that you're surrounded with sinners just like you. And sinners like you are going to say things and do things and act in ways that are going to be sometimes offensive, not only to God, but to you. And we're going to seek forgiveness and repentance and all of those kinds of things. But here's what Paul says. Look at Galatians 6:1. It would help if I was in Galatians and not Ephesians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, that is, you who are mature, should restore him in a, in a spirit of, same word as Matthew 5, meekness and gentleness. We don't get overly sensitive. We don't get overly defensive. Our concern chiefly is for restoration. And the key to restoration in the church, when any brother sins against any other brother, or any sister sins against any other sister, the key to this kind of restoration is a spirit of meekness that doesn't demand its own rights, that doesn't demand a pound of flesh, that isn't willing to walk away when things get hard or things are awkward, that doesn't always take the long way around the sanctuary to avoid that person. It aims eagerly to restore and the key to that restoration is meekness. And so it's for ministry in the church. Consider Paul's words to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Here's how he qualifies it. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. That's what meekness looks like. It's not just to receive the gospel, but it is to give the very grace of the gospel to your brothers and sisters. That's what meekness looks like. So it looks like ministry in the church, but secondly, it looks like ministry in the world. Turn to your right just a little bit to the book of Titus, Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, beginning of verse 1. Paul, now writing to Titus as a young pastor, says, this is what I want you to remind your members to be and to do. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work so as to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling and to be, see that word there? Same word as Matthew 5, meek, to be gentle. But gentle toward whom? Watch this. And to show perfect courtesy toward only the saints, toward only fellow church members, toward only those that you get along with really, really well and that you enjoy spending time with? No, he says, to all people. And here's the spirit of meekness. Meekness is produced by a heart that is poor in spirit, that mourns over its own sin, and therefore submits itself to the grace of God for the glory of God. Because we know, here's why we're meek, verse 3, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because. "...not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He's saying when you look at those who would present themselves as your enemies, those scoffers, those disobedient men and women in the world, those who are contrary to God, who hate his gospel, when you look at them, you are meant to see the only difference between you and me is the grace of God in Christ. Full stop. It is... Verse 5, not because of any works you have done in righteousness. It is because of the grace of Christ that you are what you are. That doesn't mean that we, speak, that we don't speak hard truths to culture. It doesn't mean that we don't call sinners to repentance. But in doing so, we invite them to a gentle and lowly Savior who promises them rest just as He has given us rest. And so there can be no quarter in this church for haughty, self-righteous sinners that stand on temple mounts and thank God that we're not like those other people. That is not what meek people look like. Tell them, Paul says, to be meek toward the world. Wilson Hogg says this, tenderness will win hearts so hardened that nothing else can move them. (laughs) Do you believe that? A harsh word stirs up wrath, but a gentle word. Oh, he says, tenderness will win hearts so hardened that nothing else can move them. Do you have people in your life, family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, where you go, that heart is utterly impenetrable? Tenderness. Tenderness will win hearts so hardened that nothing else can move them. Truth, spoken in love, goes directly to the heart of the hearer and calls forth a kind response. It overcomes prejudice and hardness. It melts and wins where the most logical argument, the most terrible warning, and the severest threatening would produce no more impression than the falling of dew upon a block of granite. What's more powerful than the tightest logic? What's more powerful, he says, than the most terrible warning? What is more powerful than the severest threatening when we see the hard-heartedness of our neighbors, friends, family members, and others? Blessed are the meek. Tenderness wins hearts. Correct them with gentleness. So how do we do this? How do we cultivate this? I'm going to give you a number of things. Jonathan Edwards says this lamb-like, dove-like spirit and temper is, quote, the true and distinguishing disposition of the hearts of Christians. This is what God means to produce in us by His Spirit. How do we do that? Number one is you have to receive the Word. Receive God's Word. James 1.21, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And in context, in James 1, that is contrary to anger. It is contrary to worldliness. It is contrary to all of the ways that the world would aim to to seize power and to produce the righteousness of God. No, he says, rather receive the word, the implanted word, with meekness. That's the soil of the heart that receives the word and produces good fruit. as a meek heart. So first, receive the word. Second, look to Christ. Before you do anything else, receive the word, and in the word, look to Christ. Remember what he says he is and what he is like. More than that, what he says his heart is like towards sinners like you, that I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for my souls. And so for every time that you're tempted to take a look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Robert Murray McShane said, look to Christ. Thirdly, walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 6, one of the fruits of the Spirit is gentleness, it's meekness. It's what the Spirit is producing in us by the means that God has appointed through His Word and through the gathering of the church, but He uses all those things by His Spirit to produce in us gentleness. And at the beginning and the end of that portion of Galatians chapter 5, it says, walk in the Spirit." Keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? It means, first of all, it is not only to receive God's Word, but to let it be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. That God's Word is what God's Spirit uses to produce this in us. So to walk by the Spirit is to walk by the Word. But secondly, it is to not quench the Spirit when there is known sin in our life, We need to put it to death of malice and anger, of slander, of anything that would be contrary to meekness. We got to kill it with the Spirit's help. And that leads us to the next point. You have to take off your sin. And I say take off on purpose because that's the language that the Bible uses. Just listen to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, Paul says, "...put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked, these aren't true of you anymore, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Take them all off," he says. "...do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices." "...and have put on the new self, put on then, having taken off the old self, with all the anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, put on then, verse 12, "...as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, put on meekness, take off anger." Take off slander. Take off malice. Take off the obscene talk from your mouth and put on in the power of Christ the meekness of Christ. With the Spirit's help, we've got to put sin to death. And that will be a lifelong effort on our part until Christ comes again. It is not merely enough for you to confess that you're a sinner. You've got to put it to death. It's not merely enough for you to say, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I spoke that way. Yeah, I was angry in that way. It has to go further than that. It has to be put to death. That we crucify the flesh with Christ. And it's not merely that we must do it, but that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do it. You can do it. Not because you have the resources in and of yourself, but because God has given you all that you need in Christ to do it. Because the Holy Spirit has given you strength to do it. It's not merely that you can, or that you must, but that you can. And in all of these things, finally, remember your inheritance. Remember what it is that you're killing sin for, and looking to Christ for, and receiving His Word for. Remember what it is that, why it is that you're aiming with God's help to walk in the Spirit. Because blessed are the meek. Why are they blessed? Because they shall inherit the earth. It's worth it. Keep going, keep striving, keep looking to Christ, keep praying, keep encouraging one another. That God in His kindness would produce in us the kind of meekness that true heirs naturally embody. Pray with me.